1: Buckle up for an unfiltered dose of comedy. Full disclosure, I've had a lot of sex, but honestly, having sex with me is like buying a Prius. It's much quieter than you'd expect. Epics <laughs> presents Unprotected Sets. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a call from an inmate at the Indiana State Prison. My name is Phil Chalmers, and I'm a serial killer profiler. How many murders are you responsible for?
0: 36,
1: 47, to 52. I found your sister's killer. I want to see him face to face. Listen to Where the Bodies Are Buried, a true crime podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, no!
0: Live from the Dream Hotel in Hollywood, California, this is Lips LA on Dash Radio. Hey, so we're sitting
1: with Ian Asbury from The Cult, one of the most iconic bands and all-around great guy. We're going to get into the history of um, The Cult and Ian, and there's so much to go over. Ian, you were saying it only took you 11 minutes
2: to get here. That's right. That's cool. (laughs) So we're neighbors, actually. I came by drone.
1: We're neighbors and we we actually uh, share so many people in common that we're both friendly. with. So we got to hang out the other night, which was awesome, uh, with our buddy Norman Reedus and got to catch up. I think the last time I sat with you was at the Rose Bar years ago. And um, we talked about a lot of spiritual stuff and mm. cool stuff. It was years ago. That was probably my favorite spot in New York ever, the Rose Bar. That was fantastic. Fantastic. So um, if you could get in, if so. you can get in, exactly. Yeah. Luckily, me and Nura very yeah. close friends, so I always got in. That was cool. But um, I kind of want to take it back to the beginning, Ian, because there's so much to talk about. And I know that you grew up in
2: London, and then you
1: moved to Canada
2: when Didn't you grew up right? in
1: London. Right. Well, <laughs> you grew up. You grew up in England. You grew up in
2: England. Uh, well, actually, I grew up in Glasgow. In Glasgow and near Liverpool. So that's a. De- that's a distinction. There's a definite boundary between Scotland and England. Okay, so and then, but
1: you and at some point, I think you were 11. You moved to Canada. That's right? correct. And you have like deep Canadian roots, definitely, yes, right? Absolutely. And um, yeah, tell me about all those days because I know early on it was like Bowie, Morrison, Iggy, the New York Dolls, a lot of the stuff that you were into, a lot of stuff I mm. was into. Um, and and I I feel like there's so many um you know so many connections from Ziggy Stardust was always someone that completely inspired me. My whole wall was this huge Mick Rock. Ziggy Stardust mm. picture, um, but take me back to the beginning, because obviously growing up where you did and then moving to Canada and, and those were your early influences. You know what made you sort of get the itch to play music? Was it was it Bowie? Was it Ziggy Stardust? What, you know what was it that sort of inspired you to get into it?
2: Um, I got asked to join a band because the guys liked the way I looked. That's cool. They thought I had a dope haircut and I dressed sharp, and they thought I'd be a good frontman for the band. Nobody had heard me sing um other than that i mean i sang along with records and uh consistently bowie i bought life on mars when i was 10 and he was always my north star still is um but when i went and auditioned for this band they were called the uh they were called the stimulators no that was that was harley um that was a band from new york um I forget the name of their band. They had a punk band and a lead singer had gone out and they, they asked me to sing. So the first thing we did was a Pistols. I think in the basement of a house, we did a Pistols song. They go, do you want to be the singer of the band? I'm like, sure. And that was it. <laughs> and I, I heard, <laughs> we I read some songs and we, we actually rehearsed above a reggae shop for about six months.
1: Amazing. I read somewhere that you actually used to even sew your own clothes. So there's a deep-rooted yeah. fashion sensibility. We we got talking about fashion the other clothes, night and yeah. and virtual modeling and where this whole crazy business is going. Yeah, I was sh- I was actually showing you some virtual models that appear in like the Balenciaga campaign. Know, it's phenomenal. Uh, it's crazy. We we're gonna get into all that. But so yeah, even at a young age, you're actually like making your own clothes. So. Making clothes. I yeah. grew up
2: with um. My mom had seven sisters and my dad had three, and so there was very heavy. Uh, you know, feminine influence in everything, art, music, uh, fashion. And, you know, I had a haircut when I was, in, you know, a kid. I had my hair cut by my aunties, like a little Beetle haircut. And um, it just went on and got introduced to a lot of music that probably wouldn't have been introduced to had I not had these teenage babysitters, you know. And, it, and it's so dance. funny because
1: I always say the look back then was almost equivocally as important as, like, the sound, the image was not as important and yeah. literally people that's it, right? You got barely yeah, clothes like, were big deal. Yeah, we, we like class your ha- people. We like your haircut, so join the band. Yeah, exactly.
2: So. That was it. I mean that's that was the uh, the social media of the day. It was like the street and it was like eyes and uh, you know, people checking each other out and, you know, shyly coming up to you and saying, Hey, you like this music? You yeah. know, the guitar, if you, I mean, you saw a punk rocker, you'd know immediately could have a conversation. Didn't matter what their background was. You know, where they came from, the social status, ethnicity, sexual orientation, it didn't matter. It's about the music, and we all kind of came together as this outsider group, disparate group, and obviously things like Bowie and the Pistols were really um, connective. Yeah, and it's almost like,
1: could Ziggy Stardust exist today, right? It's like, that's... um it's something I think about sometimes. Like, could some of those stars from that generation exist today? Like, Ziggy was... At the time, it was so outlandish. Yeah. Um, and it was like, wow, this guy's, like, wearing makeup. And it, but. And I actually... It, I did my homework, and I watched um, your first... I think it... Um, your first appearance with the cult... I think you had changed your name from that point, from the Southern Death Cult to the cult. It was on the tube. and yeah. I, And the first appearance kind of was reminiscent. So you wore the makeup a little bit. like yeah. Z, It was like... Right? You, the I, makeup
2: I, was really based on... Um, uh, Plains Indians uh, makeup um, that I was fascinated with. I moved to Canada when I was 11 and became fascinated with indigenous culture. I think being an outsider, it was a strange thing, um, being a Northwestern, you know, obviously white-faced kid coming into school in Canada, and it was so multicultural. And I was treated as an immigrant. It didn't matter where I was, you know, that was like Anglo-looking. Yeah. Um, all my friends were from, like, my best friends were from, like, Jamaica, Turkey... Um, Pakistani friends. Um, there was, and then it was the native kids, and we just kind of formed this clique outside of the regular, you know, high school, uh, grade school scene. And um, the music was very important as well. There was always music talking about music. Yeah, that seemed to be the the, the common denominator. So um, I became fascinated in different cultures, you know, and that was going to Canada was really instrumental in that.
1: And were the New York Dolls and all those bands, were they big in Canada? I don't even know. Well, if it, sometimes those bands don't permeate the different Don cultures. Don Krishna's rock
2: concert and uh, American Bandstand, and I used to avidly watch Soul Train. I grew up with Soul Train. My father was a massive Paul Robeson and Nat King Cole fan, so I grew up with that music as well in the house. And, oh, um, cool. But Soul Train was really important to me. I used to try and copy the dance moves. I love that. You <laughs> know, like, at, like 12, 13, that was it. I was obsessed with that. Yeah. But then it was Don Krishna's rock concert. I remember seeing the New York Dolls and Don Kirshner's rock concert. Yeah, because I lived, we lived like 40, 50 miles from the U.S. border. Oh, right, right. So, so we'd go over, like, just over the border from New York yeah. State.
1: So you would actually go to the live tapings of the show?
2: No, no, no. I was too young. Oh, no, okay. I just watched on TV. Watched on
1: TV. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It was a great show. I remember it back in the day. Yeah. Um, and at some point, Saturday Night Special as well. Was right, a Saturday right. Night Special. I don't. Saturday Night Special, whatever it's called. Yeah, I don't remember that, but I definitely remember seeing Don Kirshner. I think I saw Kiss on Don Kirshner's rock concert. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so at a certain point, obviously in 1981, Southern Death Cult, you formed that band and uh, you teamed up with Billy and the other guys in 83, I think, and eventually it became the 83.
2: cult. 83. Yeah, Southern um, Death Cult was its own its own thing. It was just its own. I mean, it, it could have been everything for me. I could have probably dined out on that for the rest of my life. Yeah, you know? yeah. After three years of that, it was just so notorious. I, uh, I, almost, you
1: know? I always felt that you almost um, invented a new genre of music because it was this sort of hybrid... Um, Psychedelic, alternative rock,
2: rock and roll. It was everything combined into one. It was what we could play. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you know, crowd rock, uh, um, you know, Joy Division, public image, bit of punk. Uh, So it was like new wave, post-punk. And then, um, you know, things like The Doors were very important. Uh, Adam and the Ants, early ants, like Xerox period ants. Yeah. Um, You know, things like The Birthday Party, Gun Club, um, you know, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, all those guys were very important influences and then the other music was slipping in like really into burundi burundi beats and, right um kind of introduced that through the ants i was uh, gonna
1: say your makeup on yeah. that first video i watched today reminded me of like adam and the ants yeah yeah That's well cool. i
2: mean that, i really kind of like i said i got really influenced by um native american culture and yeah it was an affectation of, you know i don't i think being young you just, you're on tv so i think I'm gonna be on TV, so I better make an impact. So right, I'm right. gonna paint my half my face white. <laughs> right. Your half's gonna have three red stripes on it, and yeah. we'll wear feathers and, and like a red military jacket. So I just wanted to make an impact, and it was uh, it was pretty powerful.
1: It was cool. I never saw it before, to be honest. It was a yeah. really cool clip. Um, we played
2: uh, on some I- Cop played on the tube as well, and Malcolm oh. McLaren was uh, one of the the. Uh, I guess the VJs, hosts. Amazing. And he was asked, he said, what do you think of the Sudden Death Cult? And he says, that boy's a sexual threat. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore.
1: Well, I want to jump to one of my favorite songs from that era, Nirvana by the Cult. And I want to come back and talk about uh, Malcolm McLaren and the sexual threat. And, the history of where it all started. So uh, you're listening to uh, Lips LA Radio. I'm here with Ian Asbury, and you're listening nice. to Nirvana by the Cult. Well done, Scott.
2: Hey, this is Anais Gallagher, and you're listening to Scott Lips on Lips LA Radio. So we
1: uh, we just listened to Nirvana um, uh, by the Cult, and uh, wanted to jump back into. it. You're talking about Malcolm McLaren, Ian, and yes. um, so you got to meet him. What was he all about? I
2: didn't meet Malcolm McLaren until I think I briefly said hello to him on the show, and I was just blown away because he was he was a you know uh, a hero to me and. Uh, Um, later I met him in the street when he was he did a collaboration with Supreme it was about maybe 2006 I saw him on the street in New York Uh, yeah just after he'd done the collaboration and I was actually wearing a t-shirt it was the Keith Herring oh right got t t-shirt smoking a cigarette cigar and actually that was banned because the Herring estate pulled it but um, so I met McLaren on the street got to say you know deeply admire you, respect you, and you've been a great influence on me. And, and I think he passed away a couple of weeks after yeah. that as well.
1: Yeah, he did, yeah. And yeah. that's actually, the, those guys at Supreme are kind of brilliant, I have to say, that from using uh, like Morrissey, to everything they do is pretty James. smart.
2: It's James Jebbia. He's yeah. definitely a, a visionary in that way. He's, he, the way that he wove um, all these cultural influences into essentially what was originally a skateboard brand and took it to, it became like, you know, a cultural radio station in many ways. They're, they're What, their Drops? You know, we're actually educational, informative for so many people. And yeah. Still are, it's, absolutely.
1: It, what's pretty incredible, you go to New York and you actually look and there's like, I don't know, sometimes that Supreme is dropping new stuff and there's a line for like hours long oh, down the totally street. Oh, absolutely crazy, yeah. And it, it reminds yeah. me of the days when people used to wait in line to see rock bands. You used to have to queue uh, up
2: to get tickets. That's what I like about exactly. um, what Trent did with the new Nine Inch Nails tour was he actually made people physically have to go turn up to buy a ticket. Exactly. If you wanted to see the show, you had to buy a ticket. Definitely. But there was a little bump for them as well. I think they got like um, some music or something that was made it worthwhile standing in line. Plus you got this tactile thing in your hand. Because I used to take tickets and stick them on the wall. Yeah. So you have like, you know, Clash, Glasgow, Apollo. Right, right, Or the Ramones or whatever. And you'd have it stuck on the wall and you'd stare at that thing for weeks, if not months. And you'd just be like, and getting so excited about. It wasn't yeah. like going on ticket fly and you just go...
1: Counting down the days, <laughs> down, you, you turn
2: up with it on your phone. Yeah, no, it's it was amazing. Yeah, the tickets were a big deal.
1: Man, it's such a it's such a crazy time. How we have things have progressed and changed since then. But I also I wanted to touch base on one of my favorite records of all time, "Love," obviously an electric. And um, at some point, you guys did the, both those records, super iconic. And you work with Rick Rubin, and it changed the sound of the band, mm. or you guys decided to change the sound of the band. Mm. So from kind kind of. You know, going from one sort of subgenre of music, love, to me, the, the, band, the sound of the band had changed when you started to work with Rick. Was that sort of a conscious thing for you, or you just wanted to get into a heavier sound?
2: I feel that at the time, because we were, really came out of a live situation, it was performance-based, songwriting was something that was almost exotic and alien. It was something you just did. Yeah. But it wasn't something that we really, I don't think we'd really honed it, dialed it in. I don't think that really started to happen until I got to my 40s, really. Really, but it was all performance-based, so you're writing music really for a live situation. And I just felt that Love Album was incredibly textured and layered and cinematic, and it's quite dense in places. And um, there was just the desire to strip it down to, to raw basics. And when I heard Cookie Puss in a club in Toronto, it was like 1985 or something, her heard Cookie Puss, Beastie Boys track, it's like so dope, and it's like, what is this? We should really be produced more like this with these kind of EQs. So we hit Rick up. I think we went to see him in like early '86, and I believe he's still in his dorm room at NYU. Maybe be wrong. And he sat down and he showed his uh, VHS of uh, Blue Cheer, and he goes, "More like this, you know, summertime blues, Blue Cheer." Yeah, it's more stripped back. I was thinking more like the Five, and the Stooges and the Birthday Party in the Gun Club, and more like raw performance-based bands. And I mean, it's a pretty raw record. In 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 you Know electric album because we recorded it twice.
1: Was that yeah, and I heard that was the recording process Blew a just, load of money
2: doing it, yeah, hundreds of that. <laughs> Richard I'm sure. Branson's studio outside oh, right. of Oxford. And yeah. did
1: you guys just get in the studio and hammer it out? Was it just live, everything? Because it sounds like a live record. I don't a lot remember. of the tracks
2: were already kind of there because we'd already recorded it. But then Rick's initial pitch was like, I'll re record two tracks and remix the rest. And everyone was like, Yeah, but then we started doing backing tracks. And everything else, and we we're at it for like maybe six weeks. And the label came over with the management, and we're like, "Said right, it's done, right?" And we're like, "Well, I kind of started re-recording it." <laughs> and they were like, "They just blew," it. said, "No, wait, 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 you got to listen to it." So they heard him, like, "Wow, that's that's pretty sick." So um the energy at the time was incredible. We we're on Eighth Street, Electric Lady Studios. Yeah, I've been there a bunch. Yeah. Man, it was crazy. You know, just off Sixth Avenue. and yeah. um, I ended up living down the street from there, but. Um, it was an incredible time. It's was dangerous, Washington Square Park. So much different there now. There's a lot going on. A lot of gunplay on the street. Yeah. You know, occasionally you see muggins and guns would pop out every now and again. And definitely nightlife was, you know, it's incredible.
1: And I think lyrically, you've always been inspired by New York. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. No, yeah, no,
2: absolutely. I yeah. think you busted me there. It's, I think New York's such an incredible muse. I so many layers to New York and I've had so many experiences there. Um, Even on the last record, I was talking. Well, record four last, I was talking about having a full breakdown on Lafayette Street.
1: Yeah. Well, my when we were talking the other night, I told you one of my favorite all time favorite cult songs is "Honey from a Knife," and we started talking about New York. And I actually listened to that song four times on the treadmill the other day because it's such a pumped up. Like if you want to work out. If you want to get energized, if you want to play a show, <laughs> like that's the song to listen
2: to. That's cool. I'm glad you connect uh, with it.
1: It's uh, I connect beyond words, because I, I think it's one of my favorite songs you guys have done. So let's jump to Honey from a Knife, and we're going to come back and talk about all things Ian Astonbury and the Cult in a few minutes.
0: Hello, this is Albert Hammond Jr.
1: from The Strokes, and you're listening to Scott Lips on Lips LA. Ian, you were telling me the story from Honey from a Knife, because it actually is a pretty powerful story, and we talked about it briefly the other night when we were hanging out. So mm. just touch base on it because I think it's sometimes people don't know lyrically like what goes behind a song what's what goes into a song and 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 what people are going through and I think that that song in particular it's such a energetic high-powered song but there's a, a darkness behind it too obviously
2: yeah I mean at that time I was in a rough spot I just had uh, been diagnosed that my hip was destroyed from wear and tear I'd had several motorcycle wrecks I'd been run over when I was a kid wear and tear I was a big runner played a lot of sports and and performing on you know jumping off stages and all that so physically my body was was breaking down and um the demands of, of i guess touring and making music and and kind of like an existential crisis of age and and you know so many things and feeling out of step with the culture and even though i you know a cultural uh, i'm absorbed in in the, in the culture um and there's a member sitting in an apartment one day and i just for some reason I was feeling so numb and I just took a knife, to slashed my arm and really didn't think much of it and went to sleep. And the next day I got up and was just... My usual route was around Lafayette, uh, near near Supreme, across from where Bowie used to live. I'd be there. There's a really cool little um, um, Pakistani joint. It's uh, like all the cab drivers go there. I used to hang out there and eat. Uh, I know exactly what that is. have I hall. I it's an incredible don't. joint. And yeah. there's only like six, three stools in there. Yeah. And I was running down the street and my friend kind of grabbed me and said, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just getting some food and just, you know, he said, well, yeah, but what's going on? And I said, he looked at my arm and he said, there's blood holding your arm. And I'm like, oh shit. You know, he right, uh, didn't even notice. So he took me to CVS and taped me up and um, cleaned me up. And um, it was a really beautiful moment because there was somebody there who could uh, talk me back into a place of uh, grounded cognition, you know, and uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's a choice you make it. Didn't even think about it. it was spontaneous, and it happened. And um, well, listen, you, you didn't brought really have much of a support network. You brought into. a lot of
1: joy into this world, so let's uh, be thankful that uh, you know you're here and, and doing great things. And, Thank you. And, uh, yeah, and I and I want to say it's. I was reading. I'm always reading up on the artists that we're having here, and I noticed that you you were talking about the rock and roll community, Ian, and how sort of rock and roll didn't really embrace technology and where culture has gone the way Mm. hip-hop has done absolutely Um, and and i work a lot with uh, hip-hop artists too so in talking about that a little bit because i feel like obviously um, in almost every conversation it's inevitable when i have like uh, guys in rock bands here that where it's going in culture we talked about it for a moment the other night and what do you think i mean in terms of technology rock and roll where Mm. it's all headed because obviously hip-hop has been ahead of the game in that sense you know what are your thoughts on that because i feel like we're a little bit behind if you want to talk about that community versus some hip-hop. I yeah. think
2: some artists, some artists perhaps are you know stuck in a certain, but there's a certain, you know, they, they park the bus, they get something good, get a formula going, and then park the bus, but, you know, it's tried and tested that it's always, you've got to keep evolving unless you'll get it, the energy that you put into a project. Um, as soon as it's done, it's kind of dissipated. You yeah. Know, it's time for the next thing, and I've always been inquisitive. It was because of hip-hop that we met Rick Rubin. Right. Um, So hip-hop culture has always been something I've been fascinated with. Did a festival in 1989, 1990, where we had uh, Ice-T, Queen Latifah, Public Enemy, who didn't turn up, but um, mixed with, like, Iggy Pop and Soundgarden, Indigo Girls, The Cramps. Um, The idea was, there was such great cultural connection between hip-hop and rock and roll, especially with, like, being around Def Jam family. Yeah. You know, so kind of, it was in the DNA. Certainly, I used to play, we used to play, like, you know, nwa for used to come on stage, right. blow that through the PA, yeah. and I, which I thought was dope. And the audience were like, what's this? You know? <laughs> right. It was such incredible music. Um, they were expecting ATDC. And you yeah. Know we did yes. shows recently with um, Public Enemy. We did like three shows with Public Enemy. Oh, cool. Which was kind of dope That's a couple awesome. of years ago. And um but uh, there's always been a love affair with with hip hop culture. And um, who do
1: you listen to hip hop wise? Are there artists now that used to? And, um, and, and, and I guess how I like do you the do
2: Cudi record. I like Kids see is a Kids see Ghosts. Yeah, I think that's a really dope record. The, the new album with Kanye. Yeah. That yeah, 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 that's that's an excellent, excellent record. And it's cool. kind of a rock record in some ways. There's quite a bit of guitar in it. Yeah, but I see that a lot of hip hop artists are bringing in real instrumentation. Like when we saw Kanye on uh, doing, doing Ghost Town on SNL was. Mike Dean's playing guitar, and yeah. he's really ripping it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, I saw uh, Kendrick last year, and uh, he had a band. He was off stage, yeah. but he had a band, and it really enhanced what he was doing. And Definitely. The blend of uh, programmed, you know, tracks and, and live music is, is dope. So you know, it's, it's
1: also very interesting. Mike Dean is a friend of mine, and he manages uh, my friend's son, who's like 14 I and think producing. He's incredible. Yeah, Mike Dean is, is managing my friend's son, who's 14, and I believe yeah. producing a lot of hip-hop records now. So the yeah. y- these kids are literally 14... 15 making sure. records for these like established hip-hop artists at that, that young and yeah. a friend of mine who has a hip-hop label almost everyone that works at his company is like 15
2: so it's crazy how the I youth know, 15 is really, year
1: old executives it's crazy they're like running you know they're running the music business now no, so mike
2: dean's a star he's, yeah he's incredible yeah, he's, great. He's, the, he's you know he's the missing link in many ways yeah it's great that's funny obviously. i always i always mention mike dean as you know to to like hardcore rock individuals who just can't get their head around him saying look Go check this out. Check out his production. Check out his EQs. Check out the arrangements, the choices, the sound choices. It's just incredible.
1: I think he told me the Dirty, wealth, the dirty South was where he started his sort yeah. of a production stuff. So.
2: Well, I love DJ Screw, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And you've been living in L.A. now since, I think, 89, right, Ian?
2: Um, we first came to L.A. in 1984 during the the Olympics to do a show at Perkins Palace in Pasadena. Oh, cool. I say that really fast three times. <laughs> and i
1: know that you have you play uh what we consider uh, soccer but football you you're bit right yes. you, have, you have a league going on
2: yeah i was i kind of a bit of an when i was a kid i played a little bit for a couple of amateur teams and up to about the age of 16 and um uh, then a little bit in the 20s but in the 30s i really started to play a lot of soccer in la because there was a very good competitive league here and a lot of you know uh Europeans, South Americans, you know, uh, Central Americans, Hispanic—they were just an incredible blend of players, and um, a lot of rock stars. There was a few rock stars, yeah, that could give it a good run. <laughs> I mean, right. when you're playing at a certain level, the guys, a couple of guys, huff around the park a bit, right, you know, right. And right. stop and have a cigarette break and that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, like Steve Jones, for example, excellent footballer. Yeah, I heard Billy's that. an excellent footballer. Billy Duffy is excellent footballer. Yeah, um, Mike Myers got and played in, in a game once. That was interesting. Oh, cool! Yeah. Uh, every time he got in the ball, everyone was like, "Oh, behave!" <laughs>
1: yeah. But uh, what, what's what's your take on LA? I mean, versus New York, because you lived in both cities. Do you have like a preference? I feel like your spirit is very New York too. So. Yeah,
2: to a degree. I mean, I love the sidewalk. I love the street. I love being in it with people and being kind of anonymous and just observing. You know, and seeing uh, individuals who have really cultivated a look and an uh, an energy around themselves, and it's great to be on the street and see that in LA. You're probably more likely to check out somebody's car first, right? Right, exactly. As you're judging everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I meet people and they're like, "What kind of car do you drive?" I'm like, "That's yeah.
1: a very strange thing to ask me." And that's quite you. a
2: personal thing to ask. And if you say something that's maybe not as popular as the popular car, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But um, you know, the cultures right in your face in um. In New York, you can access it just by being on a street. Whereas in LA, you got to drive a little bit and a uh, bit it's more isolating out here, right? Don't you? Feel? To a degree, yeah. But um, I find that LA right now is in a renaissance. It's yeah. just it's it's exploded, and I love the cultural diversity in this city. And uh, you can you can pretty much do anything on any given night and have yeah. an, an experience.
1: Do you get out there and explore much? Or are you more homebody? At this I point? do and I don't.
2: Yeah. I go through periods of where I'm a complete isolation, in, in isolation and quite introspective and, you know, a bit of a homebody at times. And then I'll go out. And then I'll, you know, kind of get like it's time to go out and reconnect. Yeah. Because we tour. I mean, the cult still tours. Um, yeah, you just got up a tour actually. It's talking about yeah. it was, it was you guys, Bush and, and Stone, Stone Temple House. Yeah. yeah, great so tour. It was, it was a dope tour. And when you get off the road, you're pretty exhausted. You're pretty yeah. beat, especially when done like, 30 shows in seven weeks, and been on a bus with a lot of dudes. And, yeah, a <laughs> lot know. of dudes. How was that
1: tour? Was it, I mean...
2: It was it was memories? intense. I mean, the thing was, it was kind of disruptive because we were all playing at different times every day. Right. Oh, I didn't so know So they, they kind of mixed it up. You'd be going on at seven, or you'd be going on at like 9.55, and so your whole body clock was off. I mean, sometimes you're playing two shows in 17 hours. Wow. So, um, you know, back-to-back shows, and then with a the 750-mile drive, and, you know... Um, it was challenging in that way physically. So, do you
1: fly as most stuff driving there or do you drive. fly as drive? Okay,
2: yeah. If you were to fly everywhere, you'd it'd be a fortune. So, yeah, it's expensive to tour now because the production cost. That's one thing for rock and roll, hip hop is you know, like you could turn up hip hop artist with your tracks, you know, laptop. That's good it, good to go. Yeah, fly like, everywhere, not rock and roll band, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah you got a whole production you know, got like eight cases for the drums yeah a, you know you know yeah. you're a drummer so yeah yeah definitely it's just a lot and then you gotta have the, all the moving parts to go with it so yeah. it's and back in the day people needed like this
1: crazy big stage show so you needed to have like separate trucks yeah. just to carry all this shit
2: you'd have trucks and buses and assistants and all kinds of stuff and um not even be aware of what was going on you just kind of wake up and, yeah you know
1: yeah, it's it's all it's all changing. But I I know that you also were um, doing the, you were sort of releasing capsules of music a few years yeah. ago, and it was more like EPs versus the traditional full length. And I I always, I'm almost well, like I always had this debate: does it even matter now to put up full lanes or singles? A good it doesn't it doesn't matter. I right?
2: think Kanye's established the the idea of a 27 minute album, seven tracks is yeah. a dope way to drop albums. I mean that's that's a really sharp way of doing it. Definitely, is dropping. I mean, if you've got something cooking in the seven tracks, drop it. Definitely. Right. definitely. Otherwise, you leave it too long and it go, kind of goes off to boil and it may be not as relevant when it comes out. I think rock and roll bands can do exactly the same thing. There's no rules. I mean, when I came up with the capsule idea, it was 2011. Everyone was saying you should do another record, another album. Like, the whole idea of being involved with a label and just didn't feel right. So I thought, you know, two new tracks, a live track, and a visual element. Right. And just drop it digitally. Definitely. And then maybe a, something tactile vinyl later, but the whole idea was to drop two new tracks every two to three months, and I was trying to get everyone behind it. Yeah, and everyone was like, "We don't see it." Well, and now
1: it's like common to do that.
2: Now it's much more common. Yeah. But um, at the time, it was it was a little bit before maybe like 2011, I think.
1: Yeah. Now you have a lot of artists coming out that don't even put out full length records, and they get well known just from singles. So it's but such that's a fine. Place. I yeah. mean,
2: if the quality is there, absolutely, why not? Yeah, but, Um definitely. You know, I mean, we we got so much information coming out as that it's difficult to sit down and actually carve time out to listen to a, a record it was the last time you sat down and put a record on like lit a physical well, piece of and sat there and listened to it luckily when i moved to la i bought a record player so
1: i never had one in new york so i moved yeah. out here and then i was like let me get into vinyl so we're actually we got a, a fun little thing i'm going to do with, with vinyl in a few minutes sitting next to me but um, I want to <laughs> play two of my favorite cult tracks, Little cool. Devil, Love Removal Machine, back-to-back. And I want to come back and hear from you a little bit if there's a little story between either one of them. And we'll be back in just a moment with Ian Astbury yeah. from The Cult. Hi, everybody. It's Gene Simmons, and you're not. You're listening to Scott Lips on Lips LA. We're back with Ian Astbury from The Cult. We just listened to Love Removal Machine, Little Devil. So aside from the alcohol, are there any stories behind those songs? Because I love those, those
2: songs, songs. I mean, it's just a blend of things that I was fascinated with probably... Um, I was just pulling from so many different things. The beats, the the energy of rock and roll, Stooges. Uh, you know, I kind of grew up in a military background. So Love and Move Machine was one of the things about Love and Move Machine. I was probably talking about some idea of uh, an anti-war song in some ways. Yeah. But it was also like an anti, you know, somebody who's just an energy taker somebody's taking your energy. There's, uh, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of parasitical energy around. We're like young band that was rising fast and so many people wanted a piece of it. And um, they wanted a piece of you as well. And It was very difficult to tell who was sincere and who wasn't. So it was a kind of an, an awareness uh, a building around of like, we had to be very protective, you know, um, didn't have the skills of boundaries and stuff like that. You yeah. just kind of found out through trial and error. So it's probably something, you know, some of those things woven into it as well.
1: Well, I love when you listen back on a lot of music now and some really stands the test of time and those in particular really for me, I mean, it's so it's so funny. It's almost like no time has passed and they still sound so great because you can definitely listen to some bands and listen to records and it's like, oh, that works and that doesn't, but Mm. those songs sound amazing. I want to touch upon for one minute because I know that inspirationally, you know, um, you got to to play with the Doors for a period of time, which is pretty amazing and Mm -hmm. um, just... I don't know, I can't, I don't even know what to say other than what What an honor, what a crazy yeah, experience. Mm-hmm. I watched some videos online the other day, pretty incredible that you got to fill those shoes and you did it incredibly well. Thank you. Um, which is not an easy task, I would imagine, given, no, you know. it wasn't, It's was very challenging. Yeah, the magnitude of what that looks like. But um, tell me about that. Like, I know you were always a Doors fan, but then when they finally called and what, I don't know if it was Robbie Krieger called. Or no, we called, was Danny
2: Sugarman. Oh, Danny Sugarman, Sh- okay. Danny Sugarman, actually, when they were making the film, just before they were, when they were casting it, asked me if I'd like to go out and have lunch with him. And Danny Sugarman, of course, was the author of No One Here Gets Out Alive and right. managed the doors. He was the press officer when he was like 14, 15 years of age. And then managed the band through the 70s and the 80s. Um, and he said, you know, we, we met. And he said, you, you know, we should go and uh, meet Oliver, Oliver Stone. And I remember going out at night with Oliver Stone. There's quite a few cocktails involved. and uh, yeah. <laughs> There was a car crash at the end of it, but, um, So that night spent with Oliver Stone, and Oliver Stone was talking to me about Morrison and stuff. And we ended up talking about Native American culture, and uh, it was much more kind of uh, connected on that. Uh, And he was trying to feel me out, you know, at the time they were speaking to like Michael Hutchins, I think. Oh, right, right. As a, you know, potential for, because they wanted somebody who could sing and perform, and they were looking at me, and I think I was like an arrogant. Kid at the time I was like oh yeah I'll wait till somebody makes a film about me it's just <laughs> right. you know totally out of my mind right, right, right. uh you know delusions of grandeur but right. um it was dope but that was the beginning of the relationship with Danny and the next thing um I got invited to a private dinner with uh it was um at Danny's house and it was a uh, it was uh Timothy Leary was there and a few other people and I was kind of being interviewed for wow. the job and that was in the late 80s and then they asked me to do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the 90s when he got inducted, but they chose Eddie Vedder because they were really hot at the time, right, Jam. Right, right. <laughs> and you know like twenty nine and irrelevant right right. Uh, you know we kind of had our go at it and um first go at it anyway and um and then it kind of rolled by, and there was I was very close with Danny and saw Danny often, and then one day Ray decided it 's like we, we should do something because if not now, then when yeah, and they got off this show, I think it was like holly davidson 's hundredth anniversary or something. Uh, oh no! It's the storytellers. All oh, right, right storytellers. Right. And uh, after that, they decided they wanted to do something with it. And originally, John was involved and um, walked into rehearsal one day. It was Ray, Robbie, and John, and it was it was incredible. Yeah,
1: it I mean, was, must the vibe there it must have been just beyond right? You're like, I was watching Ray do this like primal. keyboard solo. Yeah, it's crazy. It was
2: so primal, and there was such. They are still such incredible musicians. Yeah. Um, they were just at a certain level straight away. I mean, we came out of punk rock and post punk and didn't really grow up although I, I love jazz music, um, it never wasn't really a huge influence in the cult. Um, but with Ray and Robbie, you know, classical jazz, uh Indian music, um, there were so many different layers and textures and uh so being a lot asked of me to kind of find my find my ground in the you know, in this all these different influences and the door cause the doors music is incredibly layered and textured and there's sub, sub subtext and you know, many rhythms and, um, arrangements and I became immersed in their world. Yeah. So then I was, he had me off going listen to Coltrane, you know, like Alice Coltrane, you know, and stuff or, um, you know, um, just going away and listen to music. That's interesting uh,
1: that they asked you to listen to jazz. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: It. yeah. A lot of it was for that because I mean, there's a lot of improvisation that happened with one played with, with Ray and Robbie. Yeah that wasn't, you know, most rock stuff I've done is pretty structured and you stay with the arrangement, but these guys would break off all the time. Yeah. Like solo break off, you know. And so have tr- you ever seen the movie Bird? Sorry? Have you
1: ever watched the movie Bird? No, I
2: haven't and I should. You should. So yeah. when
1: I was a kid, my uncle was a jazz musician and I never understood really what he did because I was only 12. Right. He was in Charlie Parker's band. That's so, phenomenal so, so that movie, your
2: uncle was played with Charlie yeah, Parker yeah
1: my uncle was a guy named Red Rodney so that movie my, there's a guy that plays my uncle in the movie I remember driving him to meet Clint Eastwood years ago I didn't know what it meant because mm. I was so young and I just moved to LA to like you know join a band and go to music school and, and I remember driving him around and he would say to me you know I would ask him about Charlie Parker and he would say uh, you'd have to look in the history books for that one kid and not really talk to me about what it was about because wow. there was a lot of drug use and things like really? that involved and he didn't want to get into well when I watched the movie later on I, I saw all this stuff about my <laughs> uncle that I didn't know about he was in jail like I, he never told yeah. me about that stuff I didn't know anything about it pretty interesting but that's so interesting that those guys yeah that the reference was jazz because you can hear it in the music but I didn't even know that that was something that would, they would ask you to go and study in a way yeah
2: they wanted me to really immerse myself in their influences blues jazz um, they weren't really rockers. They yeah. didn't really talk a lot about rock music. Yeah, They never really spoke about rock music. It was more They spoke more about jazz and blues consistently. Uh, although the performances... And film. I, well, the performances and I,
1: I watched you do with them, definitely you brought a rock element
2: to yeah. it, which is great. But eventually I found that that started to... It's a different aesthetic. Right. Um, performance aesthetic. And gradually became more woven into their DNA. And that actually start to overtake me and uh where i was becoming more expanded as a performer is just accessing parts of myself that i was never accessed before and that was incredible education yeah it's amazing and now that's kind of all i want to do is is be challenged and work in challenging environments and and push myself and be uncomfortable and then i'm much more excited about those kind of recording situations
1: yeah is there a favorite sort of you know, time period of body of work that you've done, like because I know you got into film too, that you really like it stands out in your mind. as this is sort of the body of work that I I feel the strongest about? Um, Whether it's you know the cult to the doors or your film stuff. I mean, you've well, done so many things. All
2: so. of it. I mean, everything from sudden Death Cult through there's there's moments. There's definitely moments. Um, sometimes you can work for like a decade and you think what's going on, and all of a sudden you come up with it. You just hit a new a new space. Yeah, and I, I'm kind of getting into that now. Is, you know, which is which is thrilling because to have something to be passionate about today is, you know, gets me out of bed. And,
1: well, um, I want to come back and talk about what uh, the future holds. And I want to play a song, uh, one of the songs that I think when the band sound started to evolve and change yet again, Star. So let's Star. jump to uh, Star from the cult and we'll come back and talk about 2019 and what's getting Ian out of bed. Thanks, yes, guys.
2: Dash Radio. <laughs>
0: What up, it's Haley Bo Bailey and you're listening to Scott Lips on
1: Lips LA. We're here with uh, Ian Asper from The Cult. You listen to Lips LA Radio and Ian. So I just want to talk about 2019. We, we cover a lot of ground and there's still so much more we could cover. Mm. Um, but what, what does get you out of bed in the morning now? What kind of inspires you? What do you got for 2019? What are you doing that's challenging you? Because I know you're always doing things that are challenging you. I know you just finished a tour yeah. and I'm sure you're going to do some more music and things like that coming up.
2: That's it. It's starting to, um, I've been working with Lucid Dreaming recently. Cool. Like consciously setting the intention of a lucid dreaming. And I've been, I found, because I have really bad tinnitus, um, which is a constant ringing in the ears, especially the left ear. So I was looking for these binary beats and I just came across a lot of them on YouTube and then I came across these ones for lucid dreaming. So, you know, going to bed is quite exciting because I'm going to see what kind of, what's going to come up and try and document it.
1: Yeah. So do you remember all your dreams? Some
2: of it. Yeah. Some of it. I'm trying to get that. In that flow. So that's something that's really inspiring me right now is lucid dreaming. I'm and sure all,
1: that's going to inspire some new songs.
2: Yeah. It's already yeah. starting to filter through. Yeah. Um, so there's music, but then again, you know, the, the visual arts are very important on, uh, like looking at film, I'm writing a screenplay right now. Amazing. Well, I got a couple, but there's one I got to, fo- I got to focus on one. Actually, I had a meeting at Warner Brothers a couple of years ago and they wanted me to do a, a synopsis for a film about what it was like between the ages of 19 and 23 growing up in the band. It was like... So boring, I didn't want to do it. But now I'm thinking maybe that was... How often do you get to go to the Warner Brothers lot and have a meeting about yeah. potentially doing something? Um,
1: I think I... Wasn't there a Morrissey movie about that time period? Yeah,
2: I, I, uh, well, it's called um, England is Mine or something like that. I saw it, but I, I felt like... Billy's in that. Right, Billy's
1: in right. character's in that. I saw it because I remember yeah. Billy's character was in it. I think I saw Billy at the premiere, but I, yeah, it yeah. didn't really touch base on the music aspect that much. No, I don't it's know. more about the relationships. The relationships it's more about yeah. relationships. Yeah um i kind of want more the music when i watch that
2: film yeah because i think that exactly kind of, well, you know i don't know what they got they could actually have rights to music i'm not yeah, sure they had rights to yeah. music like the hendrix film with no music right <laughs> it's you know? like it's, it's tough to do it yeah, without
1: the music definitely because then it's like what is it really yeah. but, so but then also
2: you know clothes get me out the and i'm terrible um sneakers just it doesn't stop.
1: Really? Wow. I didn't know that. It doesn't that. stop. So rec- three thousand records and then yeah. and then three thousand sneakers. Yeah, uh-huh. the
2: sneakers are they're having to be sold off right now, which is hard. Is it Supreme? It's it's I never goodbye. would have figured. What what kind of sneakers? I got are you all kinds to- of stuff. I mean I got my first pair of Nikes in the mid seventies. Wow. You know, like uh, the waffle first pair of waffles. Yeah. I used to run on track in those. Wow. And it was like everyone used to laugh at you because they're like, What's that? You know, they looked they looked like Space Agey and just completely different. Everyone was wearing Adidas and stuff and Nikes were just so like very few people wore them, <clears throat> but in the orange box just opening up, there's something, there's Nikes, something, yeah. something mystical about Nike and maybe the logo and the name. And so I've always kind of had Nikes and, I well, went through ha- Adidas phases too, but...
1: I have a connection in a few of those companies, so I think I'll oh, have good. to connect to you- <laughs> yeah. After the program, <laughs> yes. I should be getting
2: into a Rolodex. Yeah,
1: I actually know this guy that um, runs a lot of the the Kanye stuff um, with Adidas, and he told me what a massive business that is for them. Oh, it's, it's huge. changed the game, But really. it's the
2: culture. I mean, that's another thing is the, uh, the cross-pollination of everything. Yeah. I mean, it does all connect. You know, shoes can start a conversation. Usually when you meet somebody, it's like, <laughs> what's up? You look them in the eye and then you look down at the feet and go like, okay, right, right." We continue?
1: I feel like you asked me about my sneakers, they're common projects, but I feel like you, you might have asked project, me about mine. I, That's yeah. the
2: common projects make, you know, it's dope. I mean, I'm wearing Japanese undercover joints from 10, 15 years ago. Everyone goes to Converse and go, no, nah, the undercover. <laughs> but a lot of younger heads maybe don't get it, but older heads are like, you know, you go sniff each other's yeah what, no.
1: what's the most you ever paid for a pair of sneakers i ever? always
2: got them i always usually get them face value occasionally if i miss a drop i'll go you know i've jumped on stock x every now and again so which what, is insane
1: i don't even know what that is but is StockX, that like two thousand dollars
2: sneakers the, or something it's the wall street of sneakers oh right okay so yeah.
1: what so is there an amount of money that you're like i never thought i'd pay this but no I'd no no no. Great. no
2: i mean i'm lucky because i get gifted stuff cool um I just got some acronym uh, Nike's Prestos that just came out, and I got gifted those, and that was pretty dope. When you can, you know, occasionally you get free pair of sneakers that, are, that you really, really want. Yeah, you when's wear. your
1: your birthday? Is in April? May fourteenth. May fourteenth. I knew it was April and May, so I know what to get you for your birthday. Okay. What sneakers? Sneakers, well, and clothes. I love clothes. I
2: love everything that goes around the clothes. Which uh,
1: designers do you, are you really <sighs> into? My
2: God, and we can. That's um, a whole nother fashion um, conversation. Uh, we Rick Owens. I think Rick Owens is incredible. Um, yeah. Yoji, uh, Calm, uh, Craig Green. I love Craig Green. i got some hakama that he made, like Japanese, yeah. you know, samurai hakama. Oh. Um, uh, you know, obviously street stuff. Where you can't really say streetwear. It's not streetwear anymore. It's 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 just clothing. Um, yeah. Supreme, Japanese brands, undercover, neighborhood, W-taps. Definitely. Used to wear bait when it first came out. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, some vintage pieces that I've got, like, if you're going through Eastern Europe and you find, like, a dope track jacket. Like, I've got one from a soccer team in Prague. Uh, that's an old 70s one that I love. That's cool. It's all worn out.
1: So records and sneakers, that's what yeah, I need to get camouflage. You I love camouflage. a bit of an
2: obsessive on camouflage as like well. That. I've got a massive camo collection.
1: I love, like, discovering stuff about people that you never knew. Like, yeah, who would have known?
2: I actually make my own bags, though.
1: You make your own what? Yeah, bags. You make your own bags. Wow. Can people buy these?
2: Uh, they can when I put them in the stores again. Okay. Yeah, we we had them at Union in LA. Um, some stuff. But That's we, very cool. Um, I'm just my. It's called NDF. Together. Yeah, it's uh, New Divinity Fabrica.
1: Okay, so when you put them in stores, people should go out and buy them, or can they buy them yes. now? Yes. Nowhere. Because like
2: a- oh, okay. <laughs> it's not out. Because trying to get put together, that is a whole other. It's a whole other world thing, yeah. of financing and structure and you know backing and, and business plans. And I'm terrible with business yeah. plans.
1: I think a lot of musicians aren't great with that. We're great um, with the creative.
2: I'm good at, you know, I can stand on a stage and sing. Yeah. Um, Pretty well, actually. It's all right. Yeah. Uh, it's a living. Yeah. But um, I'm really passionate about art and clothes and culture and languages. I like to try and pick up languages, food. You know, it's always amazing to travel somewhere. Do you stay. have a favorite restaurant in L.A.? In L.A.? Um, there's several Um Amy and I just went to Gwen, which we love. Oh yeah, that's right down the street. Yeah, uh, you yeah, we kind of boot around a few different places. Crossroads, we like Crossroads.
1: Yeah. Um, Are you vegan, or is that just because you?
2: Well, yeah. doctor told me I should get back on red meat. I was actually vegetarian for several years, and oh. he said that you know I needed I needed iron in my diet again and other nutrients from obviously organic, ethically raised meat. I don't. I try not to eat. A lot of meat. I've kind of gone off fish. Just keep okay. reading the mercury reports. Right, right. It's <laughs> like you're you going for that, you know, the tuna roll or whatever. And you're like, oh.
1: Everything's bad for you. Pretty soon we'll just eat air. Really, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. What so, can we eat? We can eat nothing. Um, I went to Gwen. They pulled out like a box of knives. I could choose my own knives. That's incredible. I, I didn't know what to do. I was sort of like, okay.
2: Well. But that's a real treat. Um yeah, the food's beautiful. food's incredible now. It's yeah. not like go there every night. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't no, it's a local place. Yeah. <laughs> but it's worth the experience.
1: Well, I'm excited for what 2019 has in store for you and the band. And I actually want to come out to one of your gigs soon because I've definitely cool. been to a lot of cult gigs because uh, we have many mutual friends, including shout out to Billy, too. And yes. sorry you're not here, but love you, too. And um, also, I um, want to do a little thing here with some vinyl with you. So thanks, for, so, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Ian. Absolutely. It's been, been great to have you here. Fun. And uh, we're going to play one more track from The Cult. And we'll do our uh, vinyl thing. So I think we're going to jump to, um, let's see, what's your favorite cult track? Oh, come on. I know, it's hard. It's like having 200 kids and you I have to know. pick it's, your best one. That's a tough
2: one. That's a tough one. I mean, it depends what day you're going to catch me. I'd say something like Life is Greater Than Death or I like Saints Are Down off the, the eponymous record. Um
1: Let's play Saints Are Down. I think that's a
2: great one to end on. that's, That's an intense song.
1: Yeah, Saints Are Down by The Cult, and we'll see you next week. You're listening to Lips LA Radio with Ian Astaberry.
0: This is Lips LA on Dash Radio. Hi, I'm Jingle
1: Jared. In my former occupation, I was the biggest jingle writer of all time. Now, I'm looking for a new job, speaking to every entrepreneur that I can find so I can find out what it's like to transition from one career to another. All of this expert advice has become the bedrock for a podcast I'm calling Occupational Therapy. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Well, hey there. Hey, Dennis Quaid is here. That's right. And guess what? I have a podcast. It's called The Renaissance, and I think you should listen. I'm having some really cool conversations with some really interesting people like music legend Billy Ray Cyrus, housewife Beverly Hills, Garcelle Bouvet, and many, many more.
1: Listen to The Renaissance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.